With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. The biggest challenge I face has nothing to do with decorating. Every single thing comes down to, Beth, can you and your team pivot and have something that was going to be ready three days from now, ready tomorrow? And it is my whole entire goal to always say yes. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ramon Alam. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. And the other voice we just heard belongs to Beth Kushnick. June, who is Beth? So Beth Kushnick is a set decorator, and she has a really long list of credits in movies and television. In the movies, she worked on films like Reversal of Fortune, Jumanji, and Private Parts. And in recent years, she's mostly worked on television shows like Fringe, The Good Wife, The Good Fight, Evil, and most recently, a new show on Epic's network called Bridge and Tunnel. I was thinking about this, you know, at Slate, as at the vast majority of media institutions, writers get a byline, but editors don't. You know, there are always people who work on the things that we love, whose names we don't know. The sous chef at a fancy restaurant, the crew on a film set. And I'm so curious about that level of expertise, but also that relative place of invisibility. Yeah, for sure. You know, Beth's work, if if I were to put it very crudely, is to fool people into thinking that the rooms and the outdoor spaces that we see on TV screens aren't, in fact, totally faked up spaces inhabited by actors, but real places where real people sleep and eat and work. So ideally, viewers would never think that such a role exists. A set decorator, why would we need such a thing? Because there's no such thing as a set. And I think when shows work, when set decorators do their job, we have absolutely that experience and we don't think of them. Um, One thing that I find interesting about Beth's career is that while she is clearly extremely good at that sleight of hand of making a space seem so real that it never occurs to viewers that it is indeed a set, she has also started to break that third wall. She now has a podcast called Decorating the Set, which gives a lot of behind-the-scenes dish, and she's quite active on social media helping people understand how they could use the industry secrets to, for example, make their Zoom backgrounds appear more professional, which is a service that I could definitely (laughs) make use of. June, it sounds like you have a particular appreciation for or relationship to some of the shows that Kushnick has been involved with. Yeah, I definitely had a vibe. I'm especially fond of a couple of shows that she's worked on. Uh, The Good Wife, which was about the wife of a prominent politician who does not stand by her man when he is revealed to be a love rat, as we call them in Britain. And instead, she goes back to work as a lawyer after many years as a stay-at-home mom and politician's wife. And then The Good Wife's spin-off, The Good Fight, uh, which for the last couple of seasons has been set in a predominantly black law firm. Um, The Good Fight, in particular, you could call it absurdist. You could also call it utterly bananas. it's, it's crazy, and I love it. Um, but it's a show, basically, that involves very rich people. And I can see that it would be a challenge to have their homes and offices not all look alike, and instead to reflect the personalities and the pretensions of each of the characters. And I think she did a really good job of doing that. Well, I'm really excited to hear more from your conversation with Beth. 
But before we get to that, I do have two bits of business to announce. The first is that later in this episode, we'll hear a brief chat that you had with our colleague Dan Coyce. Dan has just sold his first novel, and you wanted to speak to him about the process of writing and then selling a book. I did. And then I want to remind everyone listening about the importance of Slate Plus. If you enjoy this podcast, and I know that you do, (laughs) as well as the rest of Slate's journalism, please consider supporting us by joining Slate Plus. Those of you who are already members will hear a little more from June's conversation with Beth Kushnick, which is one of the many benefits of membership, like zero ads on Slate podcasts, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. And of course, you'll get to feel good about supporting the work we do on this show and elsewhere. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear June's conversation with Beth Kushnick. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Beth Kushnick, and for over 35 years, I've been a set decorator in the entertainment industry for film and TV. What does the job of set decorator involve? So in different places around the world, we have different responsibilities. I'm a born and bred Manhattanite and (laughs) have mostly always worked in New York. Uh, And here, through our union local, There are all kinds of categories that fall under my heading of set decoration, and they can include everything from hardware to drapery to furnishings to lighting to greens and artwork and everything you can pretty much imagine would fill a space. And the real part of my job to translate to the audience is that I'm another part of being a storyteller. So I fabricate and create for the characters kind of from the bottom up. You know, think about Mm -hmm. walking onto an empty stage and you need to supply and uh, give the set and give the characters their whole entire lives. So every piece of paper, every key, every switch plate, every piece of hardware and you know, all the things that describe you when you're sitting in your home or your office right now, everything you've amassed over your lifetime, (laughs) that's what I provide literally from scratch. And you both select and source the items, right? And sometimes, as you just said, some shows fabricate some of the items too. Yes, I'm responsible for sourcing everything, whether I pull it from a shop, say that I I have all of the purchases for a show, um, or I shop at a prop house or at a retail vendor, or I have specific items fabricated. Mostly when you're working as a set decorator in the film industry, you have prep time. Mm. So that's something a little more attainable if you make your plans properly. But as a set decorator for episodic television, you're doing a new episode every eight to 10 days. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to pull off fabricating, unless, of course, it's something very specific where maybe we create art or work with a graphics 
person and a um, you know come up with specific script related items. We're going to talk about some of the shows you've worked on. Um, I'd like to begin with your newest show, which is on the Epics Network. It's called Bridge and Tunnel, and it tells the story of six new college graduates who find themselves back home in Long Island right after graduating from college. And it's a period piece uh, set in the 80s, I believe. Right. I'm wondering what special challenges do period pieces present? Because you can't just kind of order those up from your local store. No, not at all. But, um, you know, even though Bridge and Tunnel takes place in 1980, it actually takes place even back into the 60s. Yeah. And, you know, early on in my career, I remember learning this from a very smart production designer who taught me how, you know, you look down the street and everybody has cars, Mm -hmm. new cars, old cars, you know, borrowed cars, rented cars. So when you, you're doing a really successful period piece, you have to have a breadth uh, and, and depth of items that, you know, speak Mm -hmm. to all the different characters and all their different periods. So uh, this was probably one of the most challenging jobs for me because it was my first job back during COVID. Ah. So not only was I searching for items from the 60s and 70s and 1980, getting those items, you know, during the pandemic was uh, a challenge. Yeah, when you can't just go into a warehouse or into a store and just wander or into around. a yeah, I mean even, you know, how much we source just from thrift shops and mm-hmm. you know, so many things were unavailable to us, but I I think we kind of pulled it off. Yeah. So, Bridge and Tunnel as I said, it's it's set in that in a particular milieu, neighborhood in Long Island. Um a lot of what you're signaling as well as like these are six different families is class, um, which is a very touchy subject, especially in America. <laughs> um, you want to avoid stereotypes um, and because these homes are actually really nice properties. But the kids, especially the young people, are aware that they are seen as slightly less than by Manhattanites, that they're B&T. Um, how do you address all of that with furniture and accessories? You know, really, I go back to the script, of course. Mm. We were so lucky. We ended up on literally one or two streets uh, shooting the houses all together. And, you know, some of them uh, have been owned by the owners, you know, for 50 years. Yeah. Um, Two of them had basements, which, you know, I definitely say were you know my term I love filled with the mother load (laughs) my team did an incredible job kind of you know we did a lot of begging and borrowing um to me subtle ways to express the characters and the class level really happened a lot um and was informed in the graphics in the music posters mm-hmm. um in the size or the the way that we made the rooms feel smaller but not too claustrophobic um jimmy uh one of the main characters is seen in the first episode and he's a tall strapping young man and he's seen in his you know little single teenager bed um yeah and I was surprised actually at how much I felt I really knew the period you know having lived it kind of at the same time so you know I I was uh extremely definitive on what was period appropriate and what wasn't you know every once in a while someone would say what about this and I'm like nope doesn't fit the period (laughs) now you mentioned um the stuff on the wall and I agree that is really striking um they are kind of adults in in kids rooms you know that they're at Mm -hmm. that point in their life where they're they're making that change and their rooms because they've not lived in them for four years haven't changed uh and you were really good at kind of evoking that um Putting things on walls is really a complicated thing when you're making television because, you know, you can't just use any old piece of art. You can't use the most, 
you know, the, the ones that people know necessarily because there are rights attached. Can you kind of talk us through some of the challenges that you face when you are deciding what to put on walls? Sure. I mean, in Bridge and Tunnel in particular, it happened too late, but I I realized sort of what I was craving and missing were Peter Max images. Yeah. And, you know, we go through this clearance process and, you know, I go to sleep at night afraid that I'm going to go to clearance jail, <laughs> uh, as I joke often on the set, but... Um, what does that mean? It's it it you know when you uh, make the mistake, and there have been mistakes made, of recreating something that you could put up that feels like a particular artist. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big no no, and in terms of those scenarios, now you can literally be sued. Mm-hmm. It's become an interesting turn of events because a lot of artists feel that things like uh, wallpaper patterns or carpet patterns, even, um, you know, things that are routinely bought in a either, you know, by a, a designer trade account or just in a retail store, you know, some people do feel that they own the rights to that to the point where, it cannot be used in any other form, but, mm. you know, sold retail or sold, you know, to yeah. us as designers. So we really have to balance that. I rely very often on prop houses who were willing, especially in the period sense, to provide cleared artwork that uh-huh. comes with a legal document whether the network that you're working with is willing to take that document is another story. Wow. Um, it has given my job as a set decorator a whole other kind of uh, way to think, way to process. Um, in, in the good old days, before <laughs> this was an issue, we'd you know run and gun and take something out of the trash and put <laughs> it up on the wall. You know, we yeah. would dumpster dive and kind of get whatever we wanted, wherever we wanted. But this is actually turned into a department, Mm. interestingly enough. Um, I I think sometimes if someone has an aspiration of being, uh, you know, an attorney and wants Mm. to work in the film business, this might be, you know, a, a combo of the things that they like to do. Television and movies are famously collaborative when you are collaborating, especially in a show like this where these are new characters and there's just so much work to kind of decide who these people are that you're going to evoke, who do you talk to? Who do you work with to make those kinds of decisions? Well, always the script of any show informs my initial design and concept. Uh, and then, of course, I'm working with the director in the case of Bridge and Tunnel, it was Ed Burns for all the episodes. Mm. Uh, In the case of other TV shows, you know, we have a new director because we're always prepping and shooting at the same time. When you think about it, really as a set decorator, I'm the one who has the most interaction with every department. And I could go through, you know, a number of departments uh, and explain why. I, of course, interact with the director of photography, I am the one who provides the what's called in the film business the practicals, which are the different chandeliers and lamps and standing lamps and sconces. And I kind of direct and drive the light or how the director of photography will light the set. So the lights that like we see on the set, you know, the, the bedroom lights in the in the kids' bedroom in Bridge and Tunnel or, um, you know, the, the desk lamps in, in The Good Fight, are those actually generating light that's used to shoot? Oh, yes. Um, oh. What happens is each director of photography decides 
depending on is this a night shot, is this a day shot, what the action is, where the actors are going to be, how the light needs to hit them, what their skin tone is, what their age might be, mm-hmm. you know, how you shoot each character uh, is all informed by practicals. And very often when a director and a DP come to review as I open a set for them, mm-hmm. I engage with each one of them and they might say to me, you know, I love that lamp, but in that corner, I'm not going to see it. And I, you know, give a suggestion and we move things around and we all kind of engage. Um, both their departments, the grip and electric departments, I'm involved with because what I provide them with on set or at a location is kind of what they have to contend with, the shooters, for the day. So, mm. You know, I'm aware of what kind of flooring they like to push the dolly over, and I'm aware of where they might have cables in a corner and they need me to provide something to hide those cables. Uh, So I'm dealing with them. I am dealing with the sound person because certain things make noise on a set. (laughs) I deal with the costume designer because very often, you know, we're having to be on the same page in terms of, you know, uh, I'm always showing a costume designer what tones we're using, what colors. Um, Sometimes it works if we're exactly on the same page with that. Sometimes we want to contrast that. Then in a more technical aspect, I work with the Teamster drivers who pick up all my selected items and drive them to the set and Uh, drive me from one set to the next it's kind of my mobile office my car (laughs) I work with the accountants because certainly uh, getting along with the accountant and being (laughs) on budget is paramount and I take that very 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 seriously Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course I have someone from my department an on-set dresser who maintains my vision while we're shooting because you know especially in in covid i don't cross over but i am always advancing the company with my team Mm -hmm. so you know i go into a location or a set to dress a few days before i open the set and i always say on to the next one Mm -hmm. and they come in the shooters and they do what they're doing and then we come back restore and clean up and start the next one so yeah you know, it takes a village. It's a, a <laughs> lot of people yeah. in my department. I usually have the biggest department on set. Oh, interesting. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Beth Kushnick after this. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Next week on Working... I'm talking to the illustrator and writer Austin Cleon. He's someone who I turn to when I need creative advice. And I'm wondering, who do you look to for creative advice? Drop us a line at working at slate.com or call 304-933-WORK and tell me, maybe it's a book, a specific author who tweets a lot, who is your go-to to get you inspired and thinking about creativity? Okay, let's rejoin June's conversation with Beth Kushnick. We just talked a lot about indoor sets. Um, In Bridge and Tunnel, you have a lot of outdoor sets because it's summer and these are young people who have got amazing bodies, maybe Mm -hmm. a little bit 21st century bodies in my view (laughs) as somebody who also was uh, around in the 80s. Um, But, you know, I was really struck by the outdoor furniture just because, honestly, I don't think you really see that kind of scene much in TV. Um, Maybe because shows generally don't actually shoot outdoors for whatever reason. Was it especially tricky to find 
80s style, like summer outdoor furniture? Well, June, I don't know if you read my post on Instagram last night, but it was <laughs> exactly that. It was, this was the set decorating challenge. Not oh. only did I need multiple pieces and sets because in the 80s and 70s we're talking sets mm. of outdoor furniture but I needed to <laughs> procure them during COVID. Right. We did some traveling in terms of going far out to have things picked up and dealt with some people through eBay. Um, it's surprising in a way that there were certain things like say the umbrellas that mm. the reproductions that are out there and available look so good that we got away with that mm. you know those big palm tree prints and colorful <laughs> things um you know we painted some pieces that we found and we had some quick custom cushions made we did luck out at a prop house or two, but, you know, I, I was struck in the first episode even of um, how much they stood out. Yeah. We also did a lot of greens work. You know, we... What does that mean? Um, that means that we actually went into these practical locations to the exteriors and we planted plants and oh. we trimmed trees and um, we hung string lights and... You know, and, and these those were those were not sets, right? Those were, I mean, they were sets, but they weren't fake homes. They were real people's homes. Yeah. They were real people's homes. Yes, and we painted and wallpapered <laughs> a few. A few of the bedrooms were built on a stage. The mm -hmm. um, yeah. bar bathroom that the show opens oh, with was mm -hmm. built on the stage. But uh, again, you know, COVID really informed how this job happened. And it was much healthier and safer for all of us to be outside. Were there any sort of items or sets in Bridge and Tunnel that you were particularly proud of? Just those things that just really, it was a trial and you got them and you just felt so triumphant, even if, um, you know, the nature of it is that they don't necessarily stand out and they should actually all just kind of blend in and, and just seem right. I'd say that... Uh a trip to a vendor that I had never been to, a store on Long Island, helped me come up with some incredible wallpaper <laughs> um, that really informed everything else. Um, it's amazing how there are some classics, like, you know, a day bed in one of the girls' bedrooms. There, there are things that really, when I kind of set my mind to, like, you know, again, this will inform this character mm -hmm. that it all started to come together. And, and we really worked on developing myself with the production designer, a, a different palette for each character. Oh, interesting. And that I think is kind of a subliminal thing yeah. that stands out, you know, that, that you're not sure of what it is, but it mm -hmm. works. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I lucked into some you know, friends of friends who were cleaning out their grandmother's home. Oh. Uh, I, you know, did a little trick that I love more than anything, even for myself, which is I use different sets of linens and mix them together. And, you know, that kind of pattern on pattern is something that was true of that time period. Huh. You know, pattern in the drapes, pa you know, big kind of yeah. poppy patterns. Okay, let's move away from Bridge and Tunnel mm -hmm. to one of my, well, two of my favorite shows that I know you have been working on since the very beginning, um, The Good Wife and The Good Fight, um, the, the show that's currently on uh, CBS All Access. Now, those shows take place in the world of the legal profession in Chicago. I know Chicago sometimes looks an awful lot like New York, but mm -hmm. in Chicago. And um, there are an awful lot of offices to decorate. It's not exclusively in law firms, but there is a lot of law office. There are a lot of scenes happening in law offices. How do you indicate, like, this is Diane's office, this is Luca's office, this is Liz's office? In other words, how do you show the personality of the person who works in the office when basically they're all offices in the same firm? Well, in the same way you 
think about telling a character's backstory and there are pieces that become iconic to that character. As a matter mm -hmm. of fact, back on The Good Wife, we created the first home decor license in TV history by uh, collaborating with Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams and we had a line of furniture that was, you know, The Good Wife, The Good Fight, home decor oh, line and you know it was get the look of the good wife or get the look of the good fight but it's really now become my way of engaging with fans um people started sending me pictures of their coffee <laughs> tables and you know uh that's what even led me to doing my own podcast mm -hmm. decorating the set yeah well the good fight um specifically is not only set in a law firm, but, you know, we often also do see their homes. And again, they're all pretty well-off people. What kind of tricks do you use to distinguish between really, really, really rich people, really rich people, and, and merely rich people? Uh, or is that even in your thinking? It, no, it, it actually is in the thinking because um, the first kind of crafting of each character's backstory includes what their socioeconomic class is. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, like probably in the top five questions that I pose to myself or mm -hmm. that I try to glean from the script. You know, mm -hmm. um, who is that actor? What do they look like? Their age? What age are we playing them as? <laughs> what is this family's socioeconomic background? Are they sentimental are they living with things from their past uh you know that they've handed down through generations um you know then there's certainly like for instance the movie i did reversal of fortune which uh you know the klaus and sonny von bulow story just by virtue of who those mm -hmm. people are i mean that informs a, a level of wealth that you see in absolutely everything from the products that are in the bathroom <laughs> or on the bedside table to the Christmas decor, you know, every single thing has to be presented on a really aspirational level. What is the biggest challenge you face in getting your job done and doing your job well? The biggest challenge I face has nothing to do with decorating. It's huh. all about organizing. It's about managing crew. But what it really comes down to is, you know, being prepared for everything you think is going to happen, you know, could blow up in a minute's time. And being able to pivot, whether, you know, an actor is sick or whether somebody misses an airplane or whether, you know, rain or snow is coming and the schedule has to change, uh, whether scripts are being rewritten at the last minute. Every single thing comes down to, you know, Beth, can you and your team pivot and have something that was going to be ready three days from now ready tomorrow and I it see. is my whole entire goal to always say yes even though so how do you do that though by by just having uh, by working ahead or just by having a lot of resources that you can just go pull stuff from both um you know we might work late we tend mm -hmm. to work a lot of weekends you know, the way in which people may view this as a glamorous job, I can seriously tell you, after all these years, it is so not a glamorous job. <laughs> um, it, you know, it's about really trying to adjust your mind. You know, maybe I was going to pick up items from two prop houses. Now I'm going to do it all at once yeah. uh, at, at one of them. Maybe... I had in mind something that I have to recalibrate. And, you know, um, mm. it's more about the managing of the the money, the crew, the time. You know, I mean, I think that most people can pick out a pretty sofa, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. You know, most stores in the last 10 years have uh, done that for their shoppers you know everything mm. is merchandised 
So you can walk in a store and say, I'll take that set or, you know, I want that color and, you know, everything yeah. comes in that color. So it's just a, really a mindset and a way to keep everybody moving. I, you know, constantly mm -hmm. say one foot in front of another. That's, mm -hmm. you know, how we got to do it. So uh, we've got a lot of challenges. And, you know, certainly in New York, we've had a lot of challenges. I, I am fascinated in, in a way by the COVID response and, you know, mm -hmm. all my fellow crew members and the studios and how everyone is implementing what we have to do, you know, being tested three times a week and uh, all of the protocols yeah. So that would include you who, who as you've said, you, you basically go and set things up and then you move on to the next one. You, you Even if you're there before most people are there, you're also involved in that uh, the, protocol. The reason why is because I'm considered like zone A because I interact mm. with the director and I interact, you know, the director interacts yeah. with the actors and, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's something that we have to adjust. You know, it's not in our DNA as filmmakers and crew people were so connected and we're so close and everybody's talking, you know, an inch away yeah. from each other. And, yeah. and yeah. you know, my crew moves everything and, you know, it takes two people to move a sofa. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's brought us all to our knees, just like many other places and many other industries. Beth, thank you so much for uh, being here today. I learned a lot. It was really interesting. Thank you. June, my pleasure. Thank you. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. June, one of the things that Beth said that I really found so striking is that her task is fundamentally to be a storyteller. I know. And I have to say that has become such a terrible cliche. The quickest way to get drunk would be to take a shot every time <laughs> someone described themselves as a storyteller. But in Beth's case, I think it's absolutely true. Like the work of a set decorator it's not shopping for cool sofas or like swell wall art. It's about finding things that tell viewers who these people are in a way that supports what they or others are saying in the script. Like you see a particular piece of art or a style of headboard in someone's bedroom and you immediately get a very visceral sense of who that person is. And I think that's right. Like, in a practical, even personal way. You know, the things that we hang up on our walls, the kinds of dishes that we eat off of, they do tell a story about us in reality. So of mm -hmm. course it makes sense that they'd be an aspect of the storytelling that we see on screen. 
Yeah, totally. And I'm so aware of projecting how I want to be seen by the things I put in my apartment. Like all those books. I mean, it's just purely me trying to establish that I'm an intellectual, you know, <laughs> or all those CDs trying to show off my exquisite musical taste, even though actually I don't even have anything I can play them on. So what they're really revealing is that I'm a total poser. Um so, like, it's both a story that we're all aware of telling about ourselves and one that we're used to using when we're reading other people's apartments. And, and uh, so, yeah, I think, I think it's something that we do automatically. So I personally have never seen The Good Wife or The Good <gasps> Fight. Um, oh and so I'm curious to know whether these are shows that are known for a sense of visual storytelling, the way that we think of those sets from Mad Men as being like utterly perfect, both for the period, but also communicating something about the imaginary people who are meant to inhabit them. Like, is that part of what people say about those shows? No, I think it's actually more subtle than that. Like Mad Men in particular, I mean, like it's all about drawing attention to the sets and how different things are and yet how they're still mm. so the same. Um, it's not as obvious as that, but most of the characters, as I mentioned, are attorneys. Most of them are successful attorneys. So it's a very high-end story, you know, lots of opulence and luxury. So it's really interesting and a challenge, I think, to show how very successful people, very rich people reveal their personalities in subtle and maybe unsubtle ways. So just the way that when you're in an office and everybody has exactly the same setup, what do people do to show that they're not quite like the person next to them? Uh, what do they have on their desk? And, you know, a show with a lot of black characters who are doing very well financially and successfully. Uh, that's interesting. How, you know, what do you, how do you do that without making it seem, well, that's, that's not right. Um, and then it also has a lot of recurring characters who they need to establish or reestablish quite quickly. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of signaling. And there's another thing too. Uh, I think I kind of joked about this in the uh, in the interview, but it's a show that is filmed in New York, but it's set in Chicago. So that's a whole other level of disguise uh, that the set decorating has to accomplish, I would say, pretty well. You know, as someone who truly loves shopping, <laughs> I got a bit of a thrill hearing Beth talk about The Hunt, for example, the perfect suite of outdoor furniture from the 1980s. It's like, it's such a specific goal. It's such a tall order. And it must be kind of a thrill for her to tackle that mission. God, I know, it really is a hunt. Um, as I've mentioned on this show before, I used to make a podcast that took viewers behind the scenes of the Americans. And I was always really impressed by the lengths that the set decorators had to go to to find items that were both period and also evoked kind of a Russian vibe so we could believe that we were in either Russia or a Russian embassy or consulate. Um, that was a really difficult task. But finding 1980s sun loungers in the middle of a pandemic, that might be even harder. I have to say that I felt like kind of moved hearing Beth talk about work under the conditions of COVID, right? Even something as simple, to use her example, as moving a sofa around requires, you know, the hands of a colleague. And this virus has just so transformed every aspect of our lives, and we don't really know what lies ahead. So I think we just kind of feel wistful about the most unremarkable things from the past. You know, she's just talking about moving a sofa, but also she's talking about working with people who she likes to make something that she cares about and believes in. Yeah, uh, you know, it's almost hard to believe that we're getting so many new shows right now, given how almost impossible it is for people to get together in numbers, you know, and under normal circumstances. There are a lot of people stuffed in a tiny space on a TV set. So between, you know, frequent testing, social distancing protocols and all the difficulties of just acquiring the items that we were just talking about, it's a miracle that this work is getting done. But I think it is, as you say, a testament to how much people love working together and meeting these challenges because it is happening and it's happening really beautifully. This reminds me how much I miss working with you and Isaac <laughs> and our producer, Cameron, being in those lovely Slate studios, <laughs> you know, running into other oh. writers and editors who I know in the office. Like, I miss all that stuff. 
Yeah, I'm constitutionally a hermit, so like I, I don't think that I do. But when you mention that, you know, I I do love going to the office and either you know running into people unexpectedly because oh I didn't know Ramon was going to be here today, or people that you fully expect to meet, like you know Cameron, who's two chairs down from me, and like complimenting their bag because Ramon always has the nicest bags, or just gossiping or. Just getting to see people in the flesh, you know, it's really hard to judge people on Zoom. It's much more ruthless in person. I'm going to have to apply some of Beth's set dressing techniques for my own (laughs) Zoom background so that I can avoid your ire. Speaking of missing the office, earlier this week, one of our Slate colleagues, Dan Coyce, had an amazing bit of news that I think struck us all uh, as a total surprise that he had sold his first novel in a preempt, which until I spoke with Dan, I had no idea what that meant. So I just grabbed him for five minutes and we recorded a conversation about his process of writing a book in his copious spare time, which I don't know how he has even a second to turn around, and also to how he went about selling it. Uh, And so let's hear my conversation with Dan Coyce. Hello, Dan. Hello, I'm so excited to finally have been proven to have been working. <laughs> I know, right? So this was the write-up in Publisher's Lunch. Um, I will excerpt from it. Slate so staff writer Dan Coyce's Vintage Contemporaries. Great, great title, by the way. Uh, about three very different women whose lives intersect in the dynamic, grungy New York of the early 90s and early and mid-zeros. Pitched in the spirit of Laurie Colwyn and the Great Believers to Sarah Stein at Harper in a preempt by Alia Hannah Habib at the Gernert Company. So, first of all, just some real specific details. Can you explain something about the language of that? What is a preempt? Yeah, it means that a certain kind of offer was made by the editor who bought my novel. Uh, my agent, Alia Habib sent the book out to, you know, a typical sort of wide submission list, maybe 15 editors or something at different publishing houses. And obviously the goal of that is twofold. It's you've novels are, are tricky and personal. And so you want to get, send it to as many people. So you, I mean, you're sort of just, you know, shooting a shotgun and hoping that a couple of the pellets hit people who turn out to really love it. In my case, what happened was a little unusual in my experience, which is that, One editor, Sarah at Harper, we sent it out on a Friday and she just happened to read it over the weekend. She had time and she started reading it and she got into it and she really liked it. And by a couple of days after the weekend, she had just decided, I'm going to try and jump the gun and just try and get this book before other people get in on it. So she made an offer and it was a good offer that was like, you know, an amount of money that I was like, great, I would love to be paid that much for writing a novel. (laughs) And, you know, I didn't know if other people were going to come to it, but I talked to her and I really liked her and she had a good plan for publishing it. And I was like, why put myself through all the stress? Someone wants to pay me to publish this thing I've been working on for six years. Take the money and run, buddy. So I did. So So that's what a preempt is. She preempted everyone else. So you just said something else there that is mind blowing. Six years. Six years. So you've already written this book. When were you doing it? Because not only do you have a full-time writing and editing job, you're a very active parent and and husband. Um, that sounds weird, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And you, um, you've also written other books. So during that time... Not to mention all the tweets. All the tweets. Well, I was trying to ignore those, but... Thanks. Um, so when did you write this novel? I started this novel basically the week I turned 40. Uh, six years ago because I was so angry at myself that I uh, had spent a shitload of money in my 20s on an MFA in fiction and yet had never <laughs> written a novel. In oh fact, I'd basically God. written zero fiction since the day I finished my MFA thesis. But yet that was a like a dream that I always had. And I had this sort of set of stories I was interested in exploring, but I didn't know what they were. But so I just basically wrote you know, two or three nights a week between when the kids went to bed and when I couldn't stay up anymore. Uh, and, and I did it in, basically instead of watching TV. Like I spent the last six years not watching any of the great TV shows that have been 
launched in the last six years and going to Slate culture meetings and just being a complete idiot about television, including a period when I was Slate's culture editor. (laughs) And I would just like try to get 500 words down on nights when I felt like I had something in me. And I did that for four or five years. And then this past summer, I spent a lot of time doing a project that the novelist Jamie Attenberg runs called 1000 Words of Summer, which is a one month challenge. It's like a sort of a mini nano remo. Mm-hmm. It's a one month challenge, which you're basically declaring, I will write 1000 words every day, which is really quite a few words, really, mm-hmm. when, when you actually sit down trying to do it. Um, but you're just pledging that you're going to do it. And you're making yourself publicly accountable. And I did that, and that kickstarted the book. And then I finished a draft later in the summer. So the editor who bought it will have another round of edits, right? You're not done, done. I'm not done, done. So I finished the draft this summer and I sent it out to a bunch of uh, reader friends. Like many writers, I sort of have an assemblage of close friends who are also writers, who are good readers, who I have read their books and they read mine. <laughs> and I got very good notes and feedback from them. But then, yes, this basically fourth draft that I, we submitted is now in the process of being edited by my editor. She's going to send me back, I think, a big edit memo, a big letter, probably with some line notes in a month or a month and a half. And then I'll have a whole revision to do there and there might be one round after that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know in maybe november december my agent Aaliyah, said i you know i i think that this is in good shape but there are still some things i think that you should you could do to it to make it better and at that point i basically said no i'm sorry you're you're (laughs) right i'm sure but i have been doing this for almost six years and i can't do any more work on this unless i know Someone is going to publish it. And and I want the next round of edits I do to be at the behest of someone who is invested in the book, Mm -hmm, who like mm -hmm. is is doing them because she wants this book to sell in the same way that I want to out in the world. And and so I wanted the editor. I wanted an editor to buy the book and then give me her notes. Those are the ones I wanted next. I was very lucky, I think, in that that happened. It worked out. For plenty of writers, it doesn't work out. For plenty of times, for me, with past ideas or past book notions, mm-hmm. it hasn't worked out. But this time, it did. Amazing. Uh, thank you, Dan. I'm sure we'll be talking again when the book comes out. Oh, which... uh, believe me, I will be right <laughs> up this podcast butt to try and get <laughs> my full that. time on the show. I believe that. Um, so thank you very much. Thanks, June. June, it was, first of all, just so lovely to hear Dan's exuberant voice and his happy news. Mm. But really just a great conversation in the nuts and bolts of what it's like to write a book and to sell a book. I know. And now I, I've got to give up television, but I can't. But uh, I mean, what an inspiration. Yes. We hope you've enjoyed this show. And if you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. I'm going to give you one final Slate Plus pitch. Our members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus episodes of their favorite shows. And of course, you'll be supporting the work that we do on working. It's $1 for the first month. $1. To learn more, you just go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Beth Kushnick and to our amazing producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Roman's conversation with the artist and writer, Austin Cleon. Until then, get back to work. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.